Welcome to the Healing the City podcast. On this episode, Adrian Crawford talks to Colleen Gilchrist about feeding therapies. So, have you so um, have you only done even as an OT before you had the feeding? Like, did you ever work with kids with like their fingers and and mm-hmm. smaller like dexterities and things? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm guessing you needed to do some of that before you, because feeding therapy is like an extra special training that you do. It's not just something mm-hmm. that you come out of the gates doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when you first went to the clinic, to children's clinics, you worked as an OT. Mm-hmm. Um, can you describe like what some of that is and maybe a patient, like walk us through one of your patients? Mm. Oh, now I get to pick a patient. Um So an easy way that people understand the difference between OT and PT in pediatrics or adults is kind of OT's upper extremity, PT's lower extremity. So I mean, in real terms that we all understand, arms, OT, legs, PT. Um, So like those big motor movements are PT, like jumping, running, climbing, crawling. Like if you're seeing a baby, those are the main things. And then so an OT, I'm trying to think of. Okay, I um, there was a little buddy I saw since he was a baby, so since he was like three months old. Um, and, I mean, you just think of what that child or what children that age are doing, and then that's what we're working on in therapy. So at three months, we're working on, you know, can he kind of start lift his head up off his mommy's shoulder, like when he's being held and making eye contact. And, oh, visual motor is another big piece of what OTs do. So like, and that actually precedes interacting with something with your hands is visually attending to it. So vision is a big part of what we do. And so, you know, can he look at a toy? Will he stay, stay and sustain attention and engage with that toy or look at books and pay attention while they're being read? Um, and then kind of working on like, what can he hold his head up and look at the toy? Oh, now can he hold his head up, look at the toy and reach for the toy? Um, and then it all just kind of goes from there. I mean, I think it's easy to think of OT, like we're all just like pegs and cones. Um, but it can be so much more creative than that. Um, I love doing, and I'm actually, as I go back into full-time work, I'm going to be doing both feeding and OT because that's what the clinic needs. The clinic, so we strive to be a medical home currently we we somehow lost all our occupational therapists. So I will be doing more OT when I go back to full time, um, which I'm excited about. I actually really love it. Um, but so anything that children need to do with their arms, any sort of play. And I like to find, and, and you touched on it, what do they enjoy doing? Mm-hmm. I can spend, and this is like, no offense, but this is where you differentiate. Do I have a good therapist or do I do I have an exceptional therapist or do I have like a standard OT. Um, and we're all like striving to become exceptional therapists. But I see kids and when I'm first meeting them, I just write goals based on the assessment I've done on them. But as I get to know them, I write better goals. So I might initially write a goal for a kid to stack four blocks. And there are children who do not care. And so why is that their goal if they don't like mm-hmm. blocks? Like, it's so so easy to just like write goals around what a child quote unquote should be doing. But mm-hmm. like, who's to say my son is typically developing and 
you know, I think motorically should be able to stack like 12 blocks and he will stack five and then he wants to knock it down. And so kind of holding space for who is this child? What are they good at and what do they like? And let's write goals around that. And so similar, if you were talking about shoe tying, I don't write shoe tying goals until a kid wants to have oh, yeah. shoes. Like you can't make a kid learn how to tie his shoes. And so I've worked with kids, you know, at 18 who are like, okay, I got to learn how to tie my shoes because mm-hmm. I'm going to college and I don't want to have those snappy things anymore. And I'm like, cool, let's do it. So that's like also the balance of OT is do we compensate for this lack of skill? Like in a comp a compensatory strategy is like, okay, you can't chew food. You can just eat puree. And some kids are super happy just eating pureed foods. They can have smoothies at lunch. They don't look that different. And then once the kid decides, actually, I want to eat food, then I'm like, all right, let's do this. Like we're working together. But if it's not a goal of the parent and it's not a goal of the kid, I'm not going to work on it. Yeah. It can become a huge battle of oh, it's like, a waste whales. Of time. yeah. And then, and then nothing is getting accomplished. So mm-hmm. When Bentley was born, we used to have people come out to the house. And actually, one of the things that they noticed right away, well, not noticed, but taught me right away, was that our generation of mothers, mm-hmm. like when you go to the store to buy a baby a toy, at least, and this is even more true 10 years ago, I think we're coming a long way in, in the simple toys. But 10 years, 11 years ago, when Bentley was born, it was lights. Mm-hmm. Push a button and all the lights and all the sounds and Right. And so how do you teach a child like cause and effect when they push a button and something happens for 30 seconds? That's not cause and effect. That's mm-hmm. like or it's not. And it's certainly not long enough of like a, it It needs to be much shorter for a child to repeat the action mm-hmm. over and over again to realize when I touch this, this happens. Mm-hmm. And so they actually suggested that we buy this toy from 1970 called the Happy Apple and if you haven't seen one of these, they're like these plastic apples that are probably six or seven inches um, tall and six or seven inches, you know, like the, probably double the size of an apple. Mm-hmm. And if you kind of just barely push it with your hand, it, it rocks and it makes this little jingle and then it mm-hmm. settles back down. And it's a very simple toy. Um which was a great way, you know, for them to position him in all different ways. Like you said, on my shoulders, on his tummy, mm-hmm. um, on his back. And, you know, before he could ever move, we'd put him in the pack and play with the apple. And I don't know how he did it, but we always put him on the opposite side of the apple. And within 30 minutes, he was next to the apple licking it, Yay. you know. <laughs> so it's like, but um, yeah, so and, you know, along with shoe tying, we just stopped buying Mm-hmm. shoes with laces because nike and and mm-hmm. all the brands now they don't they make great shoes with with snaps mm-hmm. and so it's like a non-issue which is really mm-hmm. cool because you don't want to set goals that that aren't realistic so um so you're going along as an ot and so what got you into the feeding therapy hmm. what got me into the feeding therapy I'm trying to remember. I think it it was kind of a gradual dance. Actually, when I started at, so I was doing, I was getting trained a little bit more in feeding therapy when I worked in Seattle because I worked at an outpatient clinic at a hospital. So we followed babies right away from the NICU. Um, so part, it was all blended, you know, like it was like, oh, you need OT, but you also need feeding and kind of giving mom's counsel. And I now have compassion on 25-year-old Colleen because I, I will always remember this mom telling me um, she had pumped. She had only pumped um, 
and she made it to a year. And so her baby, she was like through the G tube, giving him all pumped breast milk. Mm. And I don't know how she did this because she also had a two and a half year old. So she had, she, she was like, so she asked me like, I can be done. Right. Like she was looking for me to me for permission. And I was like, no, if you're pumping, like you should just keep going. And now I'm like, oh, you know, I, we pumped and bottle fed solely for Kate until she was six weeks old and I thought I was going to die. And this woman did it for over 15 months. And, um, I'm now like, Oh, you were looking for me to give you permission to stop doing that. So we're all growing and learning. (laughs) And I like pray like that someone else gave her that permission, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And God grew me, but what did you ask me? Oh, so I did a little bit of feeding, but I did mostly OT in Seattle, but I was getting trained up by my mentors. And then I moved here and children's clinics at the time, um, didn't need any more feeding therapy therapists. They were building up someone else. And then I, I just really had a passion for it. So I kind of weaseled my way in there and it was like God's wisdom because then both their feeding, the feeding therapist they had, and then the feeding therapist they trained up both left at the same time. It was like within two weeks of each other. And then they only had me for a while. Um, so then I naturally just did a lot more feeding. So, and so it was, um, I think it like started as a desire and then it was kind of what the clinic needed. And then as I, had my second child and then decided to go back to work per diem. That's just what they needed me to do is only feeding. Um, But the reason I like feeding, the reason I think it's so neat is that um, I get to see, I get to see something as a clinician that I don't get to see. I mean, we see how families interact and play. We see how families interact, you know, we do adaptive bicycles at the clinic. And so like getting kids outside and riding bikes, like all that's beautiful. But I think Adrian and I are also reading a book. Um, what is it called? The something presence. What is it called? Mm-hmm. The anyway, but I, we just read the chapter on the Lord's table and how, when we eat and, and especially when we eat the Lord's, t- the Lord's supper or come in t- in to the table in communion, that we are, stating powerfully like Jesus is here and Jesus is working and we want to know and we want to seek him and we want to invite his presence and I just see how important food and eating like you think of a celebration and you think of the food Mm -hmm. you think of you know even our church like we eat meals together it's important like that's like what brings families together it's what it's what unifies you um you know, I'm like learning about different things that my husband grew up eating because I didn't grow up eating the same things like kugel and there's just noodle put like that's noodle pudding or d- different things. And I'm like, these aren't special to me, but I want them to be special. And so there's something powerful of when a family comes in and I ask them, what are your goals or what what do you long for? And they say, I want at their first birthday party for my child to eat cake And that's actually like one of the most common goals I get. And I'm like, all right, let's figure this out because that is celebratory. You want your child and I get emotional about it because it is emotional. Like you want your child to partake in something good and a place where you feel life and where your family gathers and where you experience the divine. Like that's where we experience the divine. And so that's why I'm passionate about feeding. And, you know, it makes or breaks um, your experience as a new mom. Like if you can't feed your baby, which both my babies, I did the same thing. I syringe fed them. And I remember the nurses. I mean, I literally remember a nurse being like, you'll be back. Like being like, you're not going to succeed. And 
I want to be a voice of hope. I want to be a voice of how can we make you succeed? Like, how can we make this relationship? Because feeding is the foundation of your first relationship with your baby. Like, how can I make how can I make you guys connect in a way that the enemy is trying to tear you apart? Because this is a broken world and everything is not as it should be. Like our babies sometimes can't eat. Mm. My babies came a month early and they just weren't ready for it yet. And yeah. Mm. And you remember the people who spoke life and hope into you and you remember the people who didn't believe you could do it or I don't know. We use words like lazy. A baby's not lazy. They're a baby. Like, my babies came a month early and they needed more sleep. Like they needed to like have a womb-like environment. And you use a word like lazy and it's powerful. Like it's like, oh, my child's choosing to sleep instead of eat. And it's like, no, my child needs to eat or my child needs to sleep as opposed to eat. And how can we, you know, Mm -hmm. meet both those goals? So is feeding therapy messy? (laughs) Yes. Um, feeding therapy is very messy. I honestly, I think that our rehab techs don't understand what I do because they're like, why is there applesauce on the wall? Like every time you see this patient and it's like, cause we're experiencing it. Um, it's, it's very messy. And I mean, you think of how we learn to eat and babies physically experience it before they put it in their mouth. And that's like how we learn is, you know, before. If I'm going to eat something I've never eaten before, and an amazing clinician in town, her name is Marsha Dunklein. She's like very well renowned. She's like written the book on feeding therapy, and it's just such a gift. She's in Tucson. She talks about going to Mexico and being offered a delicacy of crickets. And it's like, before you eat crickets, you have to understand your mind like, what is that texture going to be like in my mouth? Or, you know, and so you're only like, maybe you're first just willing to touch it, but we encourage kids to. And that's how babies learn to eat, you know, so they're maybe just going to like smear the applesauce on their hands and then maybe they'll like smear it on their face and only eat and swallow a little bit. Or maybe they're going to throw it like and just letting all those things be. And so that's another place where I have to figure out the family and their social norms because not every family is okay with a child playing with their food. And that's just it's a good place to try to figure out how can we meet in the middle of, okay. In your family, you don't play with food, but to learn about food as a baby, you know, your child might be five, but their oral motor, like, so the skills they have in their mouth or the skills they have with their hands, they're like a six month old. So how can we honor your child and honor your family and let it be messy? And I mean, life is messy and, and how we learn is messy. I mean, I'm even, even thinking of like the grace you offered me last week, like, I did something really dumb driving and it's like, that's how we learn and it's messy and we're just human. And so, yeah, it's very messy. (laughs) And I try to embrace the mess because I'm not actually very messy. I like things neat. And so it's a good invitation for me as well. I'm usually covered in food. Like I come home and sometimes I can tell my husband or my family is like, why do you have food all over your pants? And it's like, because that's part of it. But it also gives me space of if my kids get me messy at breakfast before I go to work, I'm like, whatever, I'm going to get messy no matter what. (laughs) Awesome. Is there any um, last story that you want to share about a patient um, or in your journey of OT that you would just be like, I just want everyone to know this story? Hmm. Um, Hmm. That's a really great question. I think um, 
I think I think I'm just going to trust the spirit of the story that comes up. I remember running with you two years ago, and there was this little boy who um, had cerebral palsy, and just everyone was like, oh my gosh, he needs a G-tube. He needs a G-tube. And the mom didn't want one. And in my head, I'm like, it would make life easier for you. Like you should, here's this should that we as the medical community put on people, you should get one. Um, But she wanted to do the work. And so uh, to me, I'm like, if you want to do the work, like let's do it. Um, And this is like, I I think what I learned from it is like, I want to trust moms and I want to trust their guts because she though there were different barriers in communication, like she was like, no, this is what my family, this is where he ate all puree foods. And this, this is what I want to do. I'm okay with meals taking this long. I want to feed him. And, um, so we journeyed making sure the school was trained in knowing how to feed him. Cause they were like, oh, he doesn't eat and they wouldn't feed him. Um, and so training them of like how to read his cues and all that. And it was a two year journey of like him coming in, you know, sometimes every week for weight checks, sometimes every other week. I mean, I, I saw him weekly for a very long time and I'd carry him with me. I would cry over him and worry about him. And um, what actually ended up helping is us working as a medical team of the neurologist trying to figure out like, how can we get his spasticity? So spasticity is you see children with cerebral palsy. Sometimes they have like really strong muscle movements or jerks. He just had a lot of that. He was burning too many calories. So he was eating enough. He was just burning too many calories. And um, so it was the neurologist balancing out um, his his medications. And then the mom just doing the work of, I'm going to learn how to feed him. I'm going to help him be successful. I'm going to teach other people how to feed him. I don't want him to not go to school because that's another choice that some moms make is like, my kid can't do this at school. So I'm just going to keep him home. And that's heartbreaking and another issue. And this mom just like found a way, you know, she like, so it wasn't me. Like it was us working as a team supporting and trusting the mom and her mom gut. And that's Mm -hmm. like, that's, I think, what the beautiful thing of the story is, is I learned, like, I really need to continue to ask, like, what do these parents think this child needs? Because they spend all the time with them. They are experts on this child. And and then how can I be an advocate for you? How can I help you learn, like, little tid, like, because I'm just, like, a little cheerleader. Like, I'm like, ooh. And then maybe God gives me, like, a little eyes of wisdom to see the child and see, ooh, ooh here's a way we can help. And that's all I can offer. And that's actually like, I think what's grown me the most as a clinician is realizing like, I can't just take textbook information and stamp it on you, which is what I hoped would work, you know, in the beginning of my career. Um, And now I'm learning to be slower, to be an observer, to be a question asker, to be one who will sit and just be sad. Friday, I sat in a lot of sadness of like, you know, this mom really felt like her child was regressing and just feeling hopeless. And we have to feel that. Like, I can't just put a bandaid on it and be like, oh, it was the surgery. Oh, it was this. Like, I think we just need to feel that disappointment and we need to feel it in all areas of our life. So why wouldn't we have to feel it in um, feeding? But yeah, so it was just exciting. So this Mm -hmm. little boy, I mean, he, he he doesn't have a tube. He doesn't need a tube. He's finally like, way on those growth charts like doesn't mm-hmm. need he's coming in just um you know for monitoring but not what is that called like he's coming in as you would typically sure. um 
for just continuing to get for yeah. weight. Yeah. And but not because we're concerned. And sure. it was just such a beautiful moment. And that's where I'm like so grateful where I work because you know, we decided as the dietitian and me as the feeding therapist that these meetings have to happen together. Like mm. these conversations, we have to have them together. Because if you tell her mom one thing and I tell her something different, that's super confusing and this isn't going to work. And so we were all together and we were all celebrating and like crying of like, oh my gosh, his weight's amazing. Oh my gosh, he's eating amazing. Like it's just like everything clicked together. And so... Yeah. And it empowered me to like also think like what other specialty doctors can I get involved? Can I get a cardiologist get involved? Can I get his primary care involved? You know, just it taught me a lot of what other questions do I need to ask? Mm. So and, you know, that applies to all of life. You know, if our friend is hurting, like they don't necessarily need us to jump in and fix it, which is, I think, kind of what therapists think of. It's like, how can I, we say this a lot, hold space? How can I hold curiosity? How can I ask questions? And actually, usually the mom knows what they need. We usually know what we need. We're just really afraid to say it. Mm-hmm. And so. That's a really beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> oh, that um, was all the spirits. I was like, why does that one keep coming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because he still eats puree. I mean, you know, Maybe someone from the outside looking in would be like, nothing changed. He didn't get a G-tube and he still eats the same food. But I'm like, no, this is like victory of the gospel right here. And I like have goosebumps because I get to see it. Yeah, that's really great. Um, Do you um, share with your patients at all about your faith? Um, Wow, that's a good question. Um. Um, I do, I do with a certain, I I guess I do as like, I see the spirit leading. Mm -hmm. So I don't immediately jump in and say like, Jesus is going to fix all of this or, you know, um, but I actually am realizing it just comes out of the way that I talk Mm -hmm. and I didn't know this until I hung out with someone who I didn't know that well. And they were like, man, you just are always talking about Jesus. And I was like, am I? (laughs) And so I think at work, I don't necessarily say Jesus, but I say, I see us going this way or I see hope. So I talk about hope and faith and um, community. I do ask questions around where people have support, which often leads to hearing about if people had a faith background before, um, because we we need community. And mm-hmm. I think we know it as I mean, I didn't always grow up in the faith. And so I knew it as a non-believer that like I needed people around me to help me. And so that is like a good language to kind of bridge the gap. But Mm -hmm. so I definitely do have patients who come in and want to talk to me about Jesus. And we have those conversations. And then I have some where it's like more like low lying. And um, I ask them more questions about themselves. But Mm -hmm. that's really that's really beautiful. Um. And as you know, you know, the name of our podcast is Healing the City. And so we just want to hear about those (laughs) stories of people who are in our city Mm -hmm. um, and who are working, you know, in in different facets. But in your situation, you know, you're working with lots and lots of families in and around Tucson Mm -hmm. and really offering children a lot of hope and, you know, and um, for their futures and peace and comfort. And um, I just think it's... It's such a gift, and I know I've been thankful for the people who that work with Bentley that are creative mm-hmm. and, and think of, 
you know, goals that match our family and Mm -hmm. him and not just what, like you said, what the textbook says is next. Mm -hmm. Um, But that is, you know, I think that's one of your gifts is, is the ability Mm -hmm. to think outside the box and to, and and this isn't just a job, Mm -hmm. right? It's, it's like the way that you really see Jesus working in your life Mm -hmm. um, to pour out to these families. So I wanted um, others who might not get to hear some of your stories kind of get to know more mm-hmm. about what you do all day because it's really beautiful and messy and mm-hmm. um, painful. Like you've said, you've lost patience. I mean, you've mm-hmm. lost more than one patient because um, mm-hmm. there there is a lot of um, death in children's clinics because mm-hmm. there's a lot of care for kids with, um, kid, you know, either genetic conditions or... Um, traumatic brain injuries or all kinds of things that mm-hmm. where you, you know, work with a child for a while and, and then unfortunately, you know, they don't make it. So, mm-hmm. um, so just wanted to thank you for taking the time today, um, to be on the podcast and, um, do you have any last words for us or? Yeah. Um, I guess I hope it like bears fruit. I like loved what you said because we are healing the city one person at a time. And mm-hmm. I mean, I do see it as an invitation of who is before me and how can I, how can I hold them and how mm-hmm. can I love them? So this yeah. is just the avenue of how Jesus has me working. And it's actually really amazing and powerful and wonderful. And I appreciate you reflecting to me about my work. So I'm like, oh, yeah, my job is really cool. And I think that everyone would want to be an OT if they knew how cool my day can be, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not everyone would want applesauce all over them. That's oh. kind of a special, uh, <laughs> that's a special gift in you. <laughs> I do want to mention that the oh. book that Colleen referenced is called Faithful Presence, Seven Disciplines That Shape the Church for Mission. Um and so I'll make sure to put that up on the website so people can check it out if they want. Do you have any a book that you recommend that people read oh. that I could throw up there as well? You don't have to tell me now. You can tell me later. I'll tell you later. I'm right, like, ooh, good. feeding. Like, I'm like, ooh, is it an OT book? Is it just a spiritual book? That could be anything. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for joining me today. And um, Yeah, this was fun.